Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. This is Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the ATP virtual studio by Peter Franken, who is no other than guest professor for KO Blockchain Lab, senior advisor to Monex Group and co-founder of SafeCast, as well as other accolades, including research affiliate at MIT Media Lab. Peter, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Yes, Graham. Great to hear from you again. It's great to have you here. You know what? We almost met in Tokyo. I sat in your chair in your office looking at your equipment when you right. were there. So it yep. almost happened. <laughs> that happens when sometimes we have to go into the virtual space and yeah. we can't be there. So <laughs> I, I was amazed though. I sat, I mean, um, so this is your Safecast office in just off Shibuya, right? Just in Shibuya. Yes. Right? Yes. Central Shibuya. Yes. So in Tokyo, obviously, if people don't know. Um, and just the amount of equipment. So, you know, I, I was amazed. I thought, well, there's a lot of clever guys in this office, right? Yeah. And, you know, here, here's the worrying thing. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would always hide the screwdrivers in the household. Because, you know, if, if I had a screwdriver in my hand, I would take stuff apart. So they knew it was dangerous. Right. So they had to get me away from it. I don't know about you, what your sort of like tendencies with, as a kid were. Absolutely the same thing. But my parents made the mistake not to keep the screwdriver back. So... <laughs> Well, you've done all right out of it. Let's just put it that way, right? Yes, yes. You know, it, it had its positives over time. Yes. Right. So there's a lot that, that I want to talk to you about, Peter. Obviously, yes. you know, it's, it's more than six months since you were last on the show. There's a lot to update. Um, so we can talk about that. But I, I would also like to recap a little bit about your story because I find it quite fascinating for those that missed the first update on Asia Tech Podcast with Peter. It, you know, just getting into your background was fascinating. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. And if I may, I just want to dive a little bit into your past. I'm fascinated by this fact about you, Peter, is that you came, as far as I can see on paper, to Japan and worked for Panasonic or was it Matsustad? Yeah, Matsustad at the time, yes. 1989? Yes. Oh, that's a long time ago. That must have been been a while different world it was like you know that was japan as we knew it the bubble you were right in the heart of it right well it was just after the i think the bubble really started to burst and uh, uh my first time to japan was two years before that when i think it was the peak of the bubble so it was kind of a it always felt like a continuous party mode uh, to right. to be visiting japan at that time uh, people would just you know buy you beers get you free dinners and everything it was kind of crazy the 1989, I think, was really when the, the you know when, when things went off, uh, when the downwards. But still, at that time, it was really still very much, you know, kind of people were still kind of the boost was still in their bodies, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A few <laughs> and, years uh, but it, yes, but it was kind of a special time as well. At that time, uh, I was an intern at Machusta in Osaka. Uh, actually, my research topic was around. Uh, uh, figuring out algorithms for uh, 3D rendering, which is now something we take for granted. But in those days, that was really kind of what computers started to allow to be done real time. But at that time, also, Machusta Konosuke, who was the founder of Machusta, passed away while I was there. And he was really, you know, the, the father of Machusta, but also in many ways, a very iconic man uh, in, in Japanese industrial history. And it was kind of a very special thing to be to be kind of be there when it all happened and uh, the, the whole, you know, the whole company was in deep, uh, deep sadness. But at the same time, he led an amazing, an amazing life as a, as a, you know, truly, truly big leader. So mm-hmm. that, that was, 
that was in back in the days. Yes, yeah, but yeah. It's, Japan it's very, and Japan was a bit different in those days. Yes. Yeah, well, it's very much a Japanese thing though. We talk about those leaders. I mean, it has a, a real history. Maybe not so much in recent years, but you have like, I mean, the yes. Sony, the Sony boys. There was Ibuka and yes. Morita, yes. quite famous yeah. with their transistor yes. radios and. Yes. There, was, there was that guy who I don't know who it was. There was one uh, business businessman who founded uh, Kyoto Ceramics or Kyocero, as it's known, and became a monk, Kyocero. right? Yeah. Something like that. So yes. they've all got kind of interesting histories. Yes. You know, there's sort of a very Japanese way of building these very iconic brands, isn't it? Yes, but I, you know what, what I've learned is I, after that I I worked for Hitachi as a researcher, and what I learned is is that there there are many stories and there are many uh, you know iconic stories that the companies in my case the two companies are very different in the way they were uh, they were organized the way they their histories that were very much parallel uh, the way they organized was very very different Machusta at that time uh, still everybody had to wear uniforms uh, to work including myself. Uh, but we had this ceremony that at the end of the day, uh, we would read out the seven principles of Manchusta mm. uh, Konisuke uh, while standing and while facing with our faces towards head office uh, and then sing the Machusta song. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if they're still doing it. I heard that uh, they got rid of the uniforms and I'm, I'm not sure if they're still doing this. But And then after that, we, you know, in the group every day, somebody else had to tell us, you know, a story of what happened to him or her, either relevant to work or not, but you had to tell a story. Mm. And uh, so that had a big impression on me. I says, you know, wow, this is almost like a cult in a way. And then Hitachi was very much a corporate, almost like government-like uh, uh, feeling in terms of how it was organized. Well, Machusta felt like, very much like a big family with a very strong, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, s- you know, strong leadership all the way down. And well, Hitachi was much more about uh, from which university are you, you know, KO or KO or, or, or uh, Todai or something like that. Very, very bright people and very much focused on uh, on being an industrial leader. But much less of a uh, kind of, you know, in that sense, kind of iconic uh, company. So I, I think while Japanese companies have their specialities, what I learned is, is they're, they're all, you can't call them, you can call them all the same. Right? Of course, there's mm-hmm. Sony's story, there's a Toyota story, Honda story, many other stories. And you'll see that and my, what I learned is that the leaders behind those companies indeed had a huge impact of how those companies actually uh, worked as a as a company. Mm. And all of them were very successful, but not necessarily with the same ideas and, and visions behind them. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Just going back to that yes. just, uh, scenario, that sort of episode in your life, how did it feel to be... The, you're Dutch from your background. How did it feel to be the yes. Dutch guy in that company at the end of the day in your uniform doing that? What was it, the Banzai or the reading out your... Did, did you feel like, yeah, this is kind of like... I, I guess at the time people think of this is the future of the corporate world. People are looking to Japan as like the leaders in this respect, weren't they? Did you sort of feel it there? Yes. Or did you feel like, what the hell am I yes. doing? Yes, well, all of that at the same time, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I, And I was, of course, as a student, it was kind of the first time for me at that time to... Uh, to really be away from Europe, so you 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 know even though from Holland, Europe has you know it's very similar and lots of you know you don't feel really that you're so far from home. So this was really kind of a you know a, a big experience to to realize things can be organized differently. Uh, people uh, can do achieve goals in in different manners and be very very successful with it. At that time, my attraction was literally because of the computer research that was happening in Japan at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at the time of the fifth generation computing project. And there was lots of talent and people going to Japan to to be part of that. Uh, while in Holland, lots of people, st- you know, uh, started to opt out of studying engineering or technical studies. 
which was kind of the reasons why I went to Asia is, is that, that that's where my uh, you know, my interest as an engineer and, and scientist were much more aligned at that time. Mm-hmm. And lots of things were happening here. The Japanese companies at that time had huge R&D budgets, which today they still have, but they're much smaller if you look at the, the, the percentage of the, they're dedicating to that. But at that time, they were very, very uh, focused on uh, creating uh, intellectual property, uh, finding new breakthroughs and um, the R&D labs were, were very, very impressive. Mm-hmm. I had a friend, I mean, still a friend, a Japanese guy who worked for Sanyo back in yes. the day. So I, I don't think they were next. Yeah, they were next door to Machusta, by the oh, way, factories we passed the yeah, Sanyo. There you go. Right. They probably all knew yes. each other. I mean, he... They just, were very closely, yeah, they were they were kind of closely. And then later on, Panasonic actually acquired Sanyo. Right, exactly. I mean, it was yeah. all kind of, everybody was getting on with each other to a certain extent. There's a lot of consensus there. He yes. he, he worked in the R&D labs and he, um, he actually wrote a book about, Z80 assembly language back in the sort of early mid eight. Oh yes, yes. So he did yes. that, and the inter- he told the story of that. It was kind of interesting. He was just a young guy out of university, um, and he saw this opportunity, and he went to his boss and said, "Hey, look, can I write this book?" And the boss said, "Yeah, that sounds like a good idea." And he wrote the book, and he made quite a bit of money on the side out of this book. It's almost mm-hmm. as much mm-hmm. as he was making in Sanyo. Right. And the interesting thing is, like, they had. It sounded like a real time of opportunity in IT back in Japan back then. It's like a real sense of change. If you were young, you'd probably make a mark and so on. Maybe it was just him and his story and glamorizing it a little bit, you know, selling it a little bit. But it sounded like, you know, this was like the cutting edge of IT, not just in Japan, but possibly in the world as well, back then in the 80s. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, let's. Yes, let, absolutely. Yeah. Let's fast forward a little bit then. Yes. And. Let's talk about Safecast because obviously um, uh, we're talking uh, not not too long after the seventh anniversary of the Tohoku earthquake and the tsunami. Yes. And, um, yes. I, I saw. I mean, obviously you were updating on LinkedIn that your team went to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Were you actually part yes. of that? Because that just looked like wow. That yes, was, it's that hard was to re- see who was part of it because we all had to wear <laughs> uh, you know garbs. Yeah. We were just talking about wearing uniforms, and so we all had to wear uniforms in the plant. And uh, what is interesting is lots of people asking, you know, what, you know, did you have to wear lots of uniform when we went into the plant? And actually, uh, much less than we had expected. And uh, but yeah, if you look at the photos, uh, I'm in there. We all were wearing masks. And we got a helmet, mm. uh, and we all got a dosimeter, so we could keep track of how much dose we would get while in the plant. And this kind of sort came out of uh, a discussion we have been having with Tepco slowly over the years to talk about more transparency and open access. And uh, we got invited to come with our own Geiger counters, our big Geigies, of course, uh, to come and see what is what is happening. And also, uh, of course, measure at, at the same time. What is interesting is, which I didn't realize, is that TEPCO uh, now organizes regular uh, tours, so to speak, mm. for or for interest groups to actually go into the plant and uh, and, and, and look around. Uh, I think last year they did about 10,000 people altogether uh, that visited the plant. Some of those are people that are living close to the plant, residents, people who are evacuated, that get invited, but also scientists, uh, journalists, etc. And so we were one of the groups that got invited and uh, we were there. We were there with all our core volunteers, uh, we were on the bus. And uh, so we dressed much lower, you know, we, we dressed much less. And the reason for that is, is that uh, in order to 
make the plant accessible to many of the people that work there. And by the way, I, I also didn't realize it, but every day about 5,000 people go in and out of the plant to work on many, many things they're doing wow. to that's clean up and to, yeah. yeah, that's a tremendous amount of people. So they built a whole factory where basically people get processed to go from normal wear into different types of protective wear. Mm. Everybody gets, they have, you know, they have a whole system to keep track of people's doses. And uh, maybe uh, some people may may recall that TEPCO was in hot water a couple of years ago when, uh, when there were uh, concerns that they were not doing it properly, but we were there to, to basically observe how much they have improved mm. after mm. that to really make sure that they keep track of doses. At least that's what they told us. Can, but, can, yeah, we, can but, we just... Zoom yes. into that a little bit because that's kind of an important yes. point. I don't want to. I mean, it's obvious to you and I what happened, yes. but that whole sort yes. of TEPCO. I mean, this is what Tokyo Electric Power Company, right? Which is yes. who, yes. who owned the power plant, which was yes. hit by the tsunami. Yes. And the, the media were. We don't know I mean, to what extent the media inside Japan were sort of reporting about that or not reporting about or hiding it. Or there, there was a lot of grey area, wasn't it? So maybe you can kind of give it from your perspective. You knew a lot more than what was, you know, the average person was going on. Well, actually, when we started Safecast, I was an ordinary person, <laughs> and I didn't know what was going on, and that really triggered Safecast to become Safecast and, and finding out what's happening for our own good uh, sake to be able to make informed decisions as to you know what 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 to do about it, you know, and uh, and it was really the problem. Tepco at that time, uh, I think, had its hands full dealing with the massive disaster that was evolving, but. The systems that were in place to report people about radiation levels uh, failed or were, were put out of use. Uh, the government uh, had nothing else in place to measure. And basically, we were left over to some what I would call spot measurements that were done in the, in the beginning that were put on television. And later on, when we started to measure ourselves, we found out that they were highly deceptive. They may have been you know, correct in the location they were measured, but they were so... Uh, so sparse that uh, it, it was basically of no use uh, uh, for what we wanted to do. So that really triggered, uh, you know, kind of the invention of, of, of our measurement device, which we call the Bigaigi, which is a mobile radiation sensor that you can put on your car. Of course, you can also walk around or cycle with it. But really, we, we made it possible to get a high level of granularity, which we found out in the beginning was really important because the fallout, so to speak, you know, radiation kind of gives you the idea that the further you go from the plant, the less uh, less the signal is. But yeah. it is actually, you know, it is it is fallout, so it's material that comes down. And the distribution of that wasn't uniform at all. So there were much higher spots uh, away from the plant than some locations closer to the plant, of course, vice versa as well. But unless you would measure the whole thing, uh, you wouldn't really know what what uh, what you're up to, specifically if you were living there. Uh, you may be living to a very big hotspot, but simply because the government was only measuring the city halls, you would never know about it. So that really triggered our our you know our engagement uh, and uh, the project, which is still running after seven years, uh, to focus on that. Mm -hmm. So the idea was is that you know you wanted to give normal people like yourself the ability to measure radiation to be able to, you know, whether it's just for their own reporting or to be able to sh pull that information as well. Because yes. it, there, there was a there was a gap, wasn't it? It wasn't being done to the kind of granularity yes. that people yes. wanted by the government or by yes. TEPCO, right? Yes. That's, that's kind of the idea behind it. And then seven years on from the earthquake, you know, you're back in this nuclear power plant, um, yes. taking your own counters in to, to make measurements yes. as well. Just before you went in, was that your first time? Into the power plant. Yes, okay. yes, it was my first time. But some of uh, you know some of my colleagues had been there a couple of times as right. well. So we were very well prepared 
we also had had quite some discussions over the years with TEPCO people because we do lots of research on what's really happening there, right. and we you know we try to collect as much information as we can so to reflect that in our in what we call the safeguards report that you can find online. Uh, but uh, yeah, for me personally, it was the first time to go in, and uh, uh, I wasn't worried too much about going in as much. I was really curious as to. How you know how things really would look like? We've yeah, all yeah. you know all seen the pictures and we read about it, but just to get a feeling of the, sh- the sheer scale, also how the people are when they go in, uh, and literally see it with my own eyes after seven years. So that was kind of the feeling when going in. Um, and yeah, what because was that we experience knew a lot of, like for you? What, what was it actually like? To, well, you, you had well, probably you know in your mind pictured kind of, it many many kind of, times, right? It's kind of the opposite of going to Disneyland. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so, so, so you know, in a in kind of awkward way, but it, it's kind of, you know, you, you have kind of sort of an anxiety uh, right, as right. to, you know, is this the right thing or you know what will happen. But um, uh, what what was uh, interesting was just really to go through the facility and get this sense of scale. And it's really hard, you know, when you see the videos of, of, of Daiichi, etc., unless you stand you know, next to the reactors and everything, you have no idea how big it, they, these things really are. It's not a, a little tiny building; it's huge, it's massive. I think the whole site is two kilometers wide, yeah. and so when you go through that, you really realize the, the huge size of the machinery, the, the tremendous amount of force that the um, tsunami had on on the buildings. One of the things that that uh, uh, impressed me most was that when we drove through the facilities at the shore side. Uh, when the tsunami hit, there were a few big storage tanks, you know, I think diameter, maybe 15 to 20 meters, massive tanks made of steel. And uh, the power of the uh, of the tsunami basically twisted those huge steel tanks like they were made of paper. And you can see, you can see them as kind of twisted structures next to the power plant. Oh, right. And when you see that, you, you just, you know, you start to realize that the, the force of the water how big that was, and then you see this, the thick concrete walls and everything. And you say, "Well, these are huge concrete walls," but then you realize the power of nature is something that uh, that simply cannot be underestimated. Mm. Uh, and and it, you know, unless you have seen it and feel it, it it's very hard to uh, to visualize it for me. But it is it is something where you start to realize, "Wow, you know, uh, uh, this this is huge." But it's also the powers that are at work are are something maybe yeah, beyond right. our imagination. Yeah. I mean, talking about that, you know, let's put it into context. People look at what happened, that disaster, and the tsunami hit the the power plant. I mean, that that earthquake that caused it was the second, I think, the second strongest ever recorded, you know, in history, since they ever started recording earthquakes. So, right. you know, my, my, I always wonder, is like, could they, could they actually ever have done anything to prevent that disaster happening in the power plant? Because, as you said, they couldn't even imagine something that yes. big would have hit them. Well, I know that the podcast is only one hour, and this is this is the this is the, <laughs> right, sorry, the this the is spot. a <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, this is definitely a very fundamental question, and I think many uh, you know there uh, there is tremendous amount of uh, information around this. Uh, there, there has been the official diet uh, investigation led by Professor Kurukawa that shed quite a few you know quite interesting insights on how how this was, and he concluded it was a human made disaster. And uh, uh, I have my own views as an engineer around these things. I think one of the real challenges, I, I, the way I look at it is, is that the consequences of, of uh, this going wrong are very, very large, but the odds are, are very, very slim. Um, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. And I think that the main um, consideration I, I have as, as a human watching the, 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 
the situation is, is that if the consequences are way beyond what uh, a person can be held responsible for, nobody is responsible. And it kind of sounds counterintuitive, but if you have this disaster happen while you have a huge piece of, of prefecture basically being become uh, impossible to live, uh, huge you know, economical impact, huge psychological impact, health impacts, all of these things, uh, it, it is beyond uh, anybody's ability to, to, to grasp. And the real question is, should we take those risks if we know that we're never going to be responsible? The other thing is, has to do with, with how we work as humans. The, as the odds are very, very slim, they may happen uh, uh, not in our lifetime, but in somebody else's lifetime. Mm-hmm. And w- humans tend to kind of tune out of those situations because otherwise we can't live our lives. If we're going to worry about dying, then we can't live. So mm-hmm. things that are far away from uh, is less and, are, are less and less impact is something you know if, if tomorrow we're going to go on a holiday that occupies our mind but not are we going to get uh, uh, you know are, are we going to you know wh- how how many ways can i uh, can i get cancer or whatever tends to be uh, something that you're not going to worry about yeah, yeah and because of that people that work in these kind of uh, systems that are you know, they're in that in in the space where the consequences are way beyond what what the society can deal with. Mm. Then people tend to for 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 some reason tend to become complacent. Mm. Is what I observed, and the complacency can become fatal. And so I, I think that is where uh, the challenges are when when we as a society build systems and 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 things that are in that space. The real question is: is are we as humans capable of of grasping that and providing, you know, the, the social infrastructure to make sure that over generations it stays safe and it stays operated in the boundaries that should be operated in. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago there was a news item. Uh, I put it on the Safecast uh, Facebook page and elsewhere. Well, literally, it was disclosed that years well before the the earthquake, there were discussions that the tsunami could be as big as it was, but uh, the you know the management decided to ignore mm-hmm. the, the information, and and this is where you know where I think what really uh, uh, the questions have to be asked is is that can we as humans be you know are we capable of doing that you know maybe we're not uh, mm-hmm. so maybe we should draw a boundary around how far we uh, can build things uh, that can have s- serious negative consequences. But yes, so so could something have been done about that? My personal opinion is yes. If you look at a lot of, if you if you spend more than an hour, you need to do a lot of reading and and, mm-hmm. and, and checking. But I think yes, the the, the disaster uh, wasn't an act of God. It was a man-made disaster. Wow, that's fascinating. You, you wonder, don't you, when you think about the new technologies emerging now? I mean. Obviously, we talked about the the power plant and the the consequences of that going wrong. We're we're in an era now where we have access to mass data and also technologies which could also be used yes. in, in different ways. I mean, AI is one example. And I, I guess you know you're an engineer, and you yes. approach it from an engineering's perspective. You know, when you look at these projects, there are there's no master builder, is there? Like in the traditional sense, somebody who'd be the master builder of a an office block in the old days where you know it was yes. the one guy who was basically responsible for everything now well now we've got lots and lots of engineers all kind of building different parts of it and every, nobody's yes. really sort of stepping back you know okay you get elon musk or maybe mark zuckerberg come out and talk about this but only because i think 
you know, they're being pressurized to. But, you know, nobody's really sort of thinking about the implications of these technologies. Do you ever sort of worry about that or wonder about that? Or do you think that could yes. work out? No, it's, yes, no, I think it is a very important thing to wonder about. And we were kind of talking about it already. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, you have the euphoria of discovering new technologies or new techniques that led from one to the other to the other. And uh, you you don't know, you know, you you, you work on those things uh, within a positive mindset that this will improve society. And this is how, you know, even the, the, the guy who built the block will build. At some point, if you want to build a skyscraper, you know, you need so much more know-how and technology that it is beyond one single person. So mm. you get more and more people to work on it and we're building more skyscrapers and we're building more, all these things. And but it is it is not in our in humans' nature to uh, immediately think of all the negative consequences. And sometimes it is impossible to understand what those negative consequences are until it actually goes wrong. Hmm. And if you look at you know you were just mentioning uh, uh, Facebook or 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 the the next big thing is maybe electrical cars or we're gonna hmm. send uh, we're gonna build. Uh, reusable rockets and those things they all have you know they all have positive uh, usages but they can become uh, weapons uh, against you and and that is where the dilemmas are when you build new things because at that time you start small you know facebook when it started was you know it was a little tiny website but now with two billion people on it it has become uh, you know a, a whole different animal altogether i i doubt if, if mr zuckerberg actually really has, has even has control over what is happening anymore. Mm. That's way beyond, uh, you know, he, he can maybe do a few things, but it has become so complex and so intertwined that, you know, the uh, it's kind of the, how do you call it, the, my name is Frank, the Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> you have the monster in the, in the basement. And, uh, you know, what, what you know, you invented it, but you can't stop it anymore. And uh, uh, and, and that is always the dilemma of, of progress is that, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Mm. And in a way, in a kind of in a uh, in a way, the failures uh, are needed to to go to the next level. And in a way, innovation is is actually is how how you innovate. You you take you know you take a step, you find how, how why it doesn't work, and that leads you to the next step, and uh, you, maybe you have more insights. Mm. So, but uh, big failures are uh, uh, are the ones that get the headlines and cause most of the damage. So the idea is, is to and innovation is is to minimize the this you know kind of the scope at which you experiment with, and you don't experiment with two billion people, you experiment with hundred people. But if you experiment with hundred people, you may not get uh, the social uh, uh, complexities that you need to understand. So, mm. for example, uh, car engines polluting, uh, creating uh, global warming. Uh, the people that invented the car engine will have never thought about that because there were only hundred cars or thousand cars. Now they're driving. Uh, around the globe non-stop so all of these things are dilemmas and there's quite some science around how to think you know how to think about these things and can we well you know for example can we test you know can we test a new invention before we put it to society to see what the negative effects are but in many cases it is society at large that takes these new inventions and turns them into things that are uh, were unimaginable mm-hmm. in many ways so it's really a dilemma uh, for I would not only say for engineers and, and technical people, but for for any you know for 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 any you know person in a society that interacts uses or or in, in cases abuses things is that how do you how do you keep it safe? Mm. Well, I, I want to ask you as well about your um, involvement with fintech and blockchain yes. as well. well. We'll come to that in a minute. In a minute, because I mean this is a really interesting arc in the discussion. But before we get there, I think you know it's sort of 
you know, I wanted to mention that your background, obviously you were an engineer. Um, you know, as you said, we started off in Matsuda. Um, but, you know, we're talking about failures and like where things go wrong. I mean, not obviously about yourself, but there was this period in Japanese history, which, uh, you know, you, you can explain it better. But, you know, there was this organization called the long term, was it long term credit bank of Japan, which is yeah, LTC. Long, yes. Yes. That existed in the, that was one of the major, I mean, like the Fannie Mae or, you know, the, the yes. Freddie Mac of the US. It was one of the major organizations that inflated the Japanese bubble. It eventually burst and then yes. got reinvented or, you know, in the Japanese way, it doesn't sort of go bankrupt. It kind of comes back or gets bought by another yes. bank or merges. Yes. And then you came into that organization as it was then known. Was it the Shinsei Bank, which, interestingly translates as new life doesn't it i mean of looking at what yes. it mean in japanese yes. that, that must have been you know almost like when that started in 1990 right that must have been an amazing time tell us a little bit about that yes so uh, so so you're, you're absolutely correct the long-term credit bank was i think the largest corporate failure in japanese history and it went under i think with 300 billion dollars of debt wow. uh, the japanese government at the time this was uh, it, it failed around 1990 Eight ninety nine period, and at that time, uh, you may recall that lots of banks and everybody was worried about the year two thousand problem, so everybody was heads down, and it was kind of a kind of was also the the burst of the uh, the e bubble, and uh, so long term the, the government uh, found itself with uh, you know with the remainders of it, they they uh, took over the control, but then had to find another owner. And uh, it so happened that there was no Japanese bank that stepped in, but an, a group of investors uh, from, from the U.S. bought out the bank from the government. Uh, I joined uh, uh, the new so-called Shinsei Bank, uh, the new bank on uh, April 1st of 2000, which was actually the first month that it started to operate uh, under the new management. And uh, my interest uh, was to be able to contribute to rebuilding the bank from a technical and operational point of view. And bring services and technology to the Japanese banking space that were uh, well ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, the innovation in Japanese banking industry was, I would say, uh, log jammed. Uh, everybody was doing what others were doing, so not much new happened. Uh, Japan had done most of its, I would say, innovations in the 80s and early 90s in terms of building ATM networks and uh, funds transfer networks that even today operate exactly in the same way, more or less. Uh, which was at that time quite uh, modern for many countries. Don't forget the U.S., for example, even today runs largely on checks. Japan uh, got rid of that uh, in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, so it, the Japanese banking infrastructure had, uh, you know, had its strengths. But when it comes to service and servicing customers and coming up with products beyond the deposit account, it was really lagging far behind. So mm -hmm. that's, I think, where the Shinsei story uh, uh, became uh, uh, interesting is, is how do we create something like what is kind of the Starbucks for 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 coffee shops in Japan where people feel you know get a special experience they get also a special service they you know etc. So we started to build uh, a highly virtual bank. Uh, uh, we also built a 24 by 7 bank so people could just keep on banking at nighttime during weekends. Uh, we started to tie up with, uh, we are, I think we were the, the first uh, bank in Japan to tie up with the uh, convenience store ATM network, which is now in Japan the largest, uh, most used ATM network, 24 by 7. Uh, we started to uh, experiment with new technologies like IP telephony. Uh, we started to focus on how to run the entire bank on, uh, at that time, Windows. 
Uh, before that, you know, uh, even today, many banks still uh, use uh, mainframes or mid-range machines. Uh, that gave us lots of nimbleness. We could we could easily scale capacity. We could uh, keep the costs uh, down. We could use uh, reusable uh, components that we could buy outside of Japan. So we started to really uh, dramatically innovate around how do we, you know, how how do we create uh, Shinsei Bank into a very modernistic uh, uh, bank, both from technology point of view, operations, but also from a customer service perspective. Mm. And uh, and that really became the Shinsei story. Uh, uh, over time so mm. yeah so you know that that bank had obviously in its history in its previous incarnation had grown so big had gone bust had it caused a lot of political issues and now it was sort of being reborn what, what were you what were you sort of moving into at that stage was it was it a, a japanese banking culture that you were dealing with because it sounds like oh, you know you're very innovative yes. which was very un-Japanese yes. at the time. Yes. Right? Well, you know, I, I won't say that Jap- Japanese are not innovative, but um, I, I think they, they are, but uh, the banking industry, maybe not. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, and I, I, you have to kind of understand where the long-term credit bank came from. It Together with two other banks, there were three long-term credit banks in Japan that had uh, were created after the war to basically provide uh, large uh, loans to uh, all the big companies we talked about earlier uh, in return for giving uh, investors a higher rate than a deposit would do. And it was kind of, they issued debentures for that. And there was a special law that governed that. So there, the banks had a special position. And I would say the banks had, had much more the sense of being a government bank than being a private bank, even right. technically it was a private bank. So yes, yeah, a very, very, I would say very, very bureaucratic environment, very much uh, following lots of the Japanese protocols, etc. And also an environment where technology and these things were were not uh, seen as critical, and the, the reason for that had a lot to do with the fact that many of their customers they had and the deals they had were very large size, very large scale, and there was simply no need for a lot of automation or or uh, or technology. The retail branches that she, that LTCB had were focused on wealthy individuals only. Uh, there was simply no need to be any any different. And of course, when, when uh, uh, the, the new Shinsei team started, there were lots of, I would say, big gaps in, in between how, how things were. And part of the gaps also had to do with the fact that LTCB was a corporate bank and Shinsei Bank's new uh, uh, goal was to uh, build next to that a, a retail bank and an investment bank. So there were a tremendous amount of, of challenges in terms of not only gapping cultural differences, but also business practices, etc. Right. And so the Shinsei transformation story is not just about technology, operations, or products, but it's also about how do you take all the people you have on on your ship and how do you uh, get everybody to contribute to something that they maybe never have had the had, you know never had thought they would they would be part of. But mm. and so lots of time was spent on on communication and uh, retraining and reassignment and making sure that. Uh, that that all the people we, we had would uh, find a meaningful purpose within the new scope of the bank. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was a fascinating time. And obviously, I think you were in a very fortunate position as well. You had that kind of scope for innovation. In you know, I mean, you talked about some of the the innovations that you rolled out, which for, for us, you know, in in our time, 2018, from our perspective, it's like, yeah, so what? That, but back then, you know, even like ATMs in Japan, Used to shut. I don't know what time they they sort of opened twenty four seven, but I remember ATMs. You you Friday yes. night you'd go. Okay, I'll get my money out. Not to only, go 
Not only that, I, I think if you go back a little bit further, when I when I came here, the ATMs would only be operated during the branch opening hours. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, and, exactly. so that's what we're and, dealing with, right? I mean, it and, wasn't and, and the funny thing was, I, I, I was at, uh, I, when I worked at Hitachi, uh, Hitachi was part of the Hitachi Group, had its own bank called Tokai Bank. It's now part of, I believe, UFJ right. uh, conglomerate. And the, the, the most amazing thing, so this this is Hitachi, the, the, the number one industrial uh, electronics giant. It builds, you know, it literally built the ATMs and everything. And the beauty was at our research lab, we had an ATM. So Tokai Bank, of course, had installed the ATM for, the reason, for, for Hitachi. And the beauty was is that all the engineering, they had focused on, on not, you know, how do we operate this thing longer? But the engineering was at three o'clock, precisely at three o'clock, the alarm would go off and please stand backwards and then the automated shutter would perfectly come down <laughs> and, and close the ATM. <laughs> down. And I was always like, but why, what about, why not just right, right. Run it, run, let it run the whole night through? And there are lots of technical reasons why mainframes are not suitable for that. Yeah. But, but the, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, kind of a genius syndrome. On the one hand, you have yeah. the ability to build, you know, all the, all the technology in it, but on the other hand, you know, the, the, the lack of how to figure out how do you operate something nonstop and how do you go beyond, you know, limitations of, of, uh, of uh, you know, mainframe operating systems? Uh, it was all in front of, of you, but they couldn't, they couldn't connect the dots. And it right. really took till Shinsei Bank came to build the first nonstop Japanese bank. Mm -hmm. And I think even today, it probably still is. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's so many fascinating aspects to that story. I, I want to sort of like propel us into the, the modern day, if you like, and let's talk a little bit about your involvement with blockchain and fintech and so yes. on, and, and with Japan as well, because, you know, you, you asked a really interesting question, I think, as an engineer, you, you asked why, and you said, you know, why can't this open 24-7? And, you know, asking why in Japan is never as easy as sort of it may be in other countries, is it? Because sometimes that could be a little bit... <laughs> Hmm. A little bit confrontational. Yes, it may, it may, it may, it may be taken in. Well, you know, I think not in Japan, but but I think asking the right questions is how you start to innovate. So, right. uh, you know, you can of course say these are wonderful ATMs and look how wonderfully they shut at three o'clock perfectly on time yeah. and, and look at all the mechanics here. Uh, that doesn't get you to the next level. And I think um, uh, a dilemma in in the uh, in uh, in this was is that not only the asking the right question, how would you ask the right question? And a lot has to do with how do you define yourself. I think at that time when I when 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 I started at Shinsei Bank, I compared uh, the branches of Japanese banks to the brand you know, to uh, hospital emergency rooms. Mm. They had the same bright lights, the same you know kind of sense of unpleasantness. You had to pull a number and you had to line up and sit in long rows of chairs waiting for, you know, for the kind of your doctor to show up. Yeah, yeah. And nobody felt at ease. And, and the thing is, is, uh, I think, uh, if you look at the giants like Machusta and Sony, they uh, had, you know, the customer first, the customer skin. That was their whole philosophy. They built mm -hmm. their, their, their successful companies around that. But the financial industry had the opposite. They, they, they were focused on, on providing finances to companies, their customers. But retail customers were, basically seen as an unnecessary, you know, as a necessary evil. And, and that was it. Mm. So there was no, no idea of, uh, you know, customer service or how, or how can we make this better thing. Today that has changed because the competition uh, has become fiercer and the amount of money to be made in corporate banking has gone down dramatically. But uh, in, even till recently, uh, many, many uh, uh, banks still have the same procedures and processes that we had 20 years ago. If you go to a Japanese bank and you go to the counter, you will see there are three counters. There's the front counter, typically uh, manned by uh, 
by by women, and there's the second counter where you see slightly older people, and in the back counter you have a guy that has a big box with with stamps, and he is the manager. And yeah. the, if you want to withdraw money, you will see that your paper goes from back and forth, and there's lots of things happening in between. And they do exactly what the ATM is doing that you're standing next to. All right. <laughs> and so there's a lot so of papers literally. moving backwards and forth right. between people in right. Japanese. Right. So, so then the painful question comes is that why are we doing this? Okay. And so at Shinsei, what we actually did is, is we said, well, you know, this doesn't make any sense. First of all, we're not going to close the ATMs after three o'clock because the bank company is in there. We, what we said, we're going to put them inside and outside. Outside so that we could operate them 24 by 7. People could always get access to their money, which is a fundamental principle if you think about banking is that yeah. after you deposit the money the customer should always have access to its money anytime that person you know you need it back which is kind of funny you will you will notice that you actually can't do that once you close the atm you also close access to your your assets so we thought it was very symbolically important that you know you deposit the money with us but it is always visible and you can always withdraw it the reason we put the atms inside the branch was uh, we decided that uh, to remove all cash from the from the branch except for the ATM. So, mm. uh, and so there would not be three rows anymore. There would only be a front counter and the front counter would focus on uh, helping the customer with other things like mortgages or investments, but not about uh, cash transactions. So all the, the ATMs could give you money and could take your money, uh, but there, w- there would be no, pr- no people involved and the branch people could de- therefore redeploy it mm. to focus on more sales activities, which was uh, the important thing for, for bankers is to sell product. Mm. Uh, not to administrate and things like that. So there was a huge shift in thinking. And uh, we spent a tremendous amount of time to test it and to also convince people that this is, it works, it can be done. And, um, uh, but it also made a huge shift because if you think, if you if you know a little bit about banking and uh, specifically branch banking, um, in order to manage the cash, you have to have vaults, there's whole procedures, cash counting, etc. It's a very expensive and, and time-consuming activity to actually uh, manage cash in a, in a branch. Because mm-hmm. at 3 o'clock, not only ATM shut down, you need to take all the cash out of the, the front machines, put it in the vault, and in the morning, you, you need to do the reverse. So by removing all these complexity, which is not adding anything to customer experience, actually was opposite, you had to line up and wait for your number. We removed the lines, we made it easy for people to come and bring money and take money out. But also we uh, we allowed staff to start focusing on actually talking to the customer mm-hmm. and seeing how uh, we could help customers to uh, improve their financial situation. So that was the you know one of the innovations we did uh, very early on. But even today, I think uh, I don't know of any Japanese branch that has come close to that. Mm-hmm. Other banks to replicating that uh, that experience, and most of that is all engineering, and thinking and process engineering, and thinking through how to basically um, sequence and stage the whole experience in a way that the customer loves, but also uh, can be executed smoothly and uh, and, and in, a, in a timely manner. And then the technology that you need for that is very very different from what you will have if you don't do that. Uh, because the technology gets designed for how it is being used. So there was, that's why we had to move away from mainframes and we went with very, very different types of technology. We started to use the internet extremely actively to do almost everything we did. So we could work in any, uh, you know, circumstance. We didn't need to have special dedicated lines, which uh, uh, for banks at the time was very common to have your own communication lines. So all these things started to kind of you know, small little steps where they started to build up a very new, different banking experience. Mm-hmm. So when you, you look at what's happening today in fintech and Japan it particularly, you know, especially when you start looking at uh, 
cryptocurrencies or blockchain. Japan's very much, you know, listed as one of the the leading countries in the world to the extent to the extent that you know there's a lot of innovation happening there at different kind of levels. You know, and the you know. In terms of regulation as well, they seem to be on page in terms of what's necessary. You know, how is that? Where, where is that change coming from? Because it sounds like, you know, okay, maybe Shinsei Bank would be there, but all the other Japanese banks are probably, you know, dragging behind. Who's driving fintech and, you know, all the sort of like the, the, the decentralization of money, I suppose, in Japan? Where's that coming from? Uh, it- I think there is there are, there are many aspects to your question. So let me try to handle a few because fintech and crypto, etc., are not necessarily the same thing. They're kind of related, but there, there's fintech is a much broader uh, keyword for many many different things. And unfortunately, uh, there there is lots of fintech which I don't think is really so fintechy. Uh, and you really have to. My kind of definition of fintech is it is more than financial and technology because the last 30 years we had finance and technology. Actually, there was lots of technology in the financial industry, but it is really uh, the synergy of bringing in uh, uh, di- new digital technologies like uh, mobile uh, mobile phones or uh, big data or uh, maybe artificial intelligence, uh, Internet of Things, but also bringing in new players to the market that are non-traditional financial companies, think about, you know, Line or Facebook or Google, et cetera, that have, uh, that actually now have the eyeballs of the customer, uh, plus innovative thinking, new concepts of how, how do we build new user experiences. And um, so like, for example, agile thinking or lean startup, these things, if you put them all together, you, you're going to get uh, a different uh, source, so to speak. And that is kind of how I, tend to say, yeah, this is kind of fintech. And um, so there, there are new things that are possible. But I, I, what I already mentioned is, is that new players are not necessarily financial companies. So you see lots of innovation happening now outside of the financial industry. And with that, the deregulation uh, uh, that is needed to make that happen in Japan actually has made quite some progress, even though it may not be visible to everybody. But uh, Japanese regulators actually have uh, come up with new regulations over the last couple of years that are allowing for many new services to be done. For example, uh, concierge banking, um, there's crowdfunding, and more recently and most famously, uh, the uh, uh, coming up with regulations for crypto exchanges. And I think in Japan, there is a sense of uh, that, you know, Japan used to be the financial center of Asia. And uh, today, Japan, when I meet people, rarely gets mentioned as a financial uh, powerhouse. It actually, uh, on, in terms of balances and financial power, it actually is. But in terms of uh, a center of activity, it's really become in Asia. Singapore has taken the lead and Hong Kong is uh, is uh, used to be one, is now second, but it, it's not Tokyo. And I think there's a realization that uh, in Japan that, you know, the, 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 the lack of competition in, in among the Japanese banks, etc., has has uh, run its course, course, and there needs to be more competition, more innovation, and more things. So I think the regulators have kind of le- learned a lesson from uh, what they saw in Singapore, where uh, the regulators started to become actively involved in, in uh, creating uh, regulatory sandboxes and coming up with stimulation uh, measures to get banks to do get out of their comfort zone and bring in fintechs, etc. So in Japan, I think that has gone, that kind of had a delay, but it has uh, found its way. 
Uh, also, what is interesting, I think, in Japan is is that besides startups, etc., that normally are kind of associated with disrupting the space, there's quite a few of the bigger banks that have actually have set up their own fintech departments where they're working with startups or trying to do uh, innovation on their own. So there is, there is, if you look back three years ago when fintech was kind of, what is that? Uh, it's become more established. There is a good number of startups now. There's more uh, investment coming that way. So I think that kind of in that sense, things have taken a shape. And I think last year's move by the Japanese government to regulate uh, Bitcoin instead of walking away with it, I think they're doing, uh, hopefully, doing a, a well-controlled experiment to find out instead of saying, no, what if we do it? Maybe we can take the lead. And, and again, uh, uh, you can't, you know, you can't innovate without things going wrong. But if you if you draw a regulatory box, then you say, well, within that box, does it work or not? And if it doesn't work, what do I need to do to make it better? Uh, it's not only about, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin thefts and stuff like that. You know, fintech is much broader. But if you innovate, you need to, you know, you, you know, you have to break an act to make an omelet. So as, as a regulator, if you start to think about these things, I think it becomes uh, also important that you, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to allow new things to happen as we go. We will have to adjust. Mm-hmm. But I think that that type of uh, uh, realization is there. And I think that kind of uh, has had a very positive effect on much more fintech activities in Japan, including uh, the rise of all the Bitcoin exchanges. Yeah, yeah. So what do the regulators get right? Because there's a lot of talk, isn't there? And there's a lot of speculation about what is possible or who's doing what. But what did, what did they actually do in Japan? What did the regulators actually put out there as some sort of physical, tangible regulation? Um, so uh, this is a topic for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know, so so re- re- regulations are, are, you know, there there are many different opinions and feelings about that. But um, this basically, if you if you look at uh, in Japan, the regulator is uh, is currently is known as FSA, the, fin- it's the Financial Service Agency. And before FSA existed, it used to be uh, scattered across some of the ministries in Japan. And that made it really uh, uh, very hard for new companies to do anything because it was very bureaucratically hard to figure out who can tell you what you can do and not do. So when the FSA was created, it was a bold move to basically say put everybody that has to say something about financial in one single organization so that we can start to create some clarity. Now, from a law perspective, still Japan has many different laws that kind of inter intersect and overlap rather than have one that kind of governs all. But by having a single uh, uh, responsible person, people can go there and ask, you know, can I do this or not? Uh, regulators basically uh, are law enforcement. They de- they can define the, the rules, then have to enforce the rules. And as they enforce the rules, they can see what goes wrong. And based on what goes wrong, they can make adjustments. But also they have to have their ears and eyes open to say that, you know, what, what we thought was important 10 years ago may not be true anymore because we have new things happening in society, for example, virtual currencies or the internet or, uh, you know, uh, please understand before the internet, the, the idea of virtual banking and branching virtually didn't exist. And now suddenly this possible, but it, it, lots of regulations were written uh, for physical branches. So there, there are things like every day you need to close the, the vault. You need to have a mm. physical ledger to show everything is balancing. How do you do that if it is running 24 by 7? That was one of our challenges in Shinsei was that the regulators were used that you open and close the books every day 
in the bank. And then there is a, you know, have people sign or put their hankos on it to prove that everything is balancing. But if you run it 24 by 7, when are we doing that? So, uh, and how does that work? So, so the regulatory frameworks uh, over time need to be adjusted to accommodate for new breakthroughs and, 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 and needs in society as well. So I think that's where the regulators uh, play a key role. Of course, if something goes wrong, uh, you know, politicians may step in, etc. But they have to uh, figure out, you know, how you know we thought that we we were covering this, but it still went wrong. So, do we need to change the regulations, or was this, you know, small enough event not to worry about it, or a freak accident? So, we're not going to change the rules for everybody. We'll live with it. So, I think that's where the regulators play, uh, uh, you know, an important role. And also, regulators will have to allow some experimentation because progress sometimes happens in in, in you know in the gray zone. And, and that is where fintech really uh, has shown, uh, uh, you know, to be to be very powerful is in that gray zone where uh, new technologies allow new things, but the regulations have not caught up yet. Uh, and that creates lots of opportunity, obviously. Yeah, yeah, there's that interesting riff, isn't there, in your, your history as well, where you, you know, I mean, if you go back to Safecast, where you're effectively promoting, I know you mentioned it sometimes as DIY or citizen science, you know, where you're giving yes. people the tools to, do what needs yes, to be done the, themselves. And, yes, the, and econo- it, the Economist uh, in, uh, in their Christmas special called this Punk Science, so it's also there. All right, there you go. Yes. But, you know, if you take that to the, the, the finance world as well, you know, there's that element, yes. isn't there? I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you're there, you're there as a, a Dutch guy who spent, you know, the last, well, what are we now, nearly 30 years in Japan you know, in that environment, in what some what are or were some of the biggest organizations in Japan and encouraging people yes. and being part of that change at the grassroots level. That's a really sort of fascinating aspect of your story, isn't it? And do you ever sort of think yes. about that? You know, what sort of drives you in those circumstances? Yes, sometimes I wonder, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think you have and, to, right? I do think you have to because uh, I think you have to do anyways, you know, at some points you have to say why am i doing this what what drives me what what you know what and really in essence what is your what what are you passionate about why mm. you know this is you know why, why are you doing this why do you go you know you came to japan as a student and why you stayed on why do you, why do you do the things you do and i think when you're when you're much younger you know it's more like a tsunami how life comes at you and the, the things are happening or whatever but as you uh, go go you know go through a career you start to you more you start to ask more questions about about these things and i think for me it's really a passion about building things uh i i love building things i like to create things so uh, so my my whole life from from kindergarten onwards i've been playing with lego blocks and building things i built my computer when i was 13 years old i build you know literally what you were talking about you know screwdriver i i pulled mm-hmm. televisions apart radios i put tried to put it back together sometimes successful sometimes <laughs> not so uh, but but the, you know the, the curiosity how things work but also how do you build things how do you come up with, with newer and better things uh, that really drives me and i found japan uh, you know an ideal uh, place uh, to be the, the, the obsession of uh, Japanese companies with detail and building and manufacturing, etc., is phenomenal, and that really uh, inspired me to uh, uh, to be part of that. At the same time, as we were talking, is you know I'm from Holland, I'm uh, I'm not Japanese, and you learn what you're good at and what you're not good good at. And so for for Japanese companies, they're they're in their own red. We're all in our red. But if you if you bundle up, you can you know you can uh, team up and say you know I I may be able to. 
to to be good at solving these type of problems. You're good at solving these type of problems, and try to uh, see how how you can get the best synergy. While at the same time, you know, be passionate about what uh, what you do. So that kind of ties many of the things I do today are tied together in one way or another with uh, the idea of creation mm. and building things and trying out new things. I don't have much fear for trying, but at the same time. Uh, how do you do things, new things in, in the most safest manner so that uh, you're not going in as a maverick, you know, with your eyes closed? Uh, if you if you build things, how do you do it in such a way that uh, uh, that you can take a step forward, but not necessarily risk uh, risk the boat you're on or the franchise you're working? Mm-hmm. That's Peter Franken, everybody. Ko Blockchain Lab, Monarchs Group, Safecast, and MIT Media Lab plus a few others as well. So, Peter, thank you so much for coming onto the show today and sharing your story. It's been a real privilege. Yes, Graeme. Thank you so much. And hopefully talk to you soon. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.